This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Media Matters, Citizen Radio, The Bugle, The Young Turks, The Tom Hartman Program, Countdown with Keith Olbermann, The Majority Report, The Jimmy Dore Show, and Rachel Maddow with a bonus video clip for our Apple iOS and Android app users from The Daily Show. This is the Media Matters Minute. I'm Tori Brown. Rupert Murdoch's British tabloid News of the World has gotten itself embroiled in a hacking scandal that is starting to scare away major advertisers. The Prime Minister of Great Britain, David Cameron, has gotten involved. He is calling for an independent inquiry into charges that the paper hacked or tried to hack into the cell phones of murder victims and their families. NBC's Michelle Kaczynski is in London with this. Michelle, this is just disgusting. But what has truly outraged Britain is the allegation that just came out that the news of the world may have hacked into the voicemail of a 13-year-old girl who was abducted and murdered while she was missing, and that that hacker deleted some of her voicemails as her mailbox filled up, which at the time gave her family all of this false hope that she might still be alive. Carmakers Ford, Vauxhall, and Mitsubishi Motors, along with Britain's biggest high street lender, have stopped advertising in the paper. Rupert Murdoch, friend of the show, <laughs> uh, media mogul, owns News of the World uh, newspaper in the UK. For anyone else who doesn't know, also owns Fox News, um, is starting to own so much media that it would actually, the amount of media he owns would be illegal in certain countries. Mm-hmm. Um, that one person cannot have that much uh, power, especially when it's uh, slanted right wing. Right. So there's a story that was pretty huge in the UK about this missing schoolgirl named Millie Dowler. And her family was searching for her. And uh, then it became news that the News of the World, which again is Rupert Murdoch's newspaper, was illegally targeting uh, the missing schoolgirl, Millie Dowler, and her family. In March 2002, interfering with police inquiries into her disappearance, an investigation by The Guardian has established. So what do you mean targeting? Okay, so what happened was they were illegally accessing Millie's phone. And the reason they were doing this is because, you know, print media is in trouble and they're constantly racing to get breaking news because they want to beat uh TV media, they want to beat internet media, they want to be the one to get the big scoop. But here's what they did. They kept calling her voicemail, and people were leaving messages on her voicemail, and it got full. So what they did (sighs) was delete the voicemails. Her family finds out that the voicemails have been deleted, and they think she's alive. They do an interview with the News of the World saying, we're so hopeful now because Millie's voicemails have been deleted. So we know she's alive and they don't say anything. Whoa. The police 
hear that her voicemails have been deleted and they continue to operate as though this is a lead. They think that she's still alive. So they interfered with an investigation. They let her family think that their daughter was still alive. They let the cop follow a false lead. Yep. So now it would be one thing if this was the only time this has happened, but the news of the world actually has a long tradition of wiretapping people. For example, the Royal family. Um, well, did you read about what uh, I don't know if this broke today, but uh, Chris Hayes over the nation posted uh, he didn't write about it. The nation. He just posted a link um, about the seven seven bombings. Yes, that's actually what I was going okay, to talk cool. about just now. So the editor of the newspaper at the time, uh, the news of the world got in trouble for wiretapping uh, or I'm sorry, intercepting messages from the royal family meant for the royal family. His name was Andy Coulson. Uh, Andy Coulson had to resign from the news of the world. Right. But then he went to work for David Cameron. David Cameron, uh, the conservative leader. Yeah, as his communications chief. After his resignation over phone hacking from news of the world. Uh, He then defended, or Cameron then defended colson on numerous occasions and even made him a head of communications at downing street while the allegations were on the front pages uh and then it's written that reports suggest that colson resigned at murdoch's insistence not cameron's wow uh which i found interesting just because once again it seems like rupert murdoch has more power than the head of a state right and it's that same you know, cycle that happens here. Fuck up in government, become a lobbyist, fuck up as a lobbyist, go and get, go to government. Yeah. So what you were saying, Jamie, was uh, the 7-7 bombings. Yeah. So they're saying that uh, reports have emerged that the families of several other high profile victims have had their phones hacked into, as have the families of the victims of the 7-7 bombings. Yeah. News of the World actually hired a private investigator yes. uh, to do that. So they're saying several high profile victims. So, so look, if there's a tragedy... If you were over in the UK, if you did, right, uh, there's a good chance that the fucking pariahs over at News Corps uh, are, are trying to capitalize on that and listen to the voicemail of uh, the emotionally shattered relatives of yours. Yes, as part of a desperate quest to maintain some kind of legitimacy in their dying media. Right. You dead. You dead, media. So this is just interesting because everybody was trying to shield the 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 brass in this. You know, they were trying to shield the upper echelons of the news of the world from uh, liability. Right. But this was official policy. This is what they're saying in the article, where everybody knew that they did this. Right. So it's nice just to see on the Guardian's website, like Rupert Murdoch's name and photo splashed everywhere, because uh. I'm sure he thought, you know, well, I could just say that I don't know what the practices are in my own newsroom. Like, re- really? Right. Really?
As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. This is the Media Matters Minute. I'm Danny Herrera. Yesterday, we reported that major advertisers had begun to drop from News of the World, a British tabloid owned by media tycoon Rupert Murdoch, after allegations surfaced that the paper had hacked into the phone of a young murder victim. We have a new development in this story. As many would say, shocking news. James Murdoch, who is the de- deputy COO and the chairman and, and CEO of, of International for News Corporation, Rupert Murdoch's son, has just announced that the News of the World, which is a, a very popular tabloid here in the United Kingdom, a Sunday newspaper, is going to close down. This Sunday, we'll see the last edition of News of the World roll off the presses and all of the profits will go to good causes. Additionally, reports are coming in that sub-editors at The Sun, another Murdoch-owned newspaper, have walked out of work in protest and in solidarity with their colleagues at News of the World. News of the World news now! Hack attack! Today, today, Andy, is the final edition of the News of the World, the notorious British Sunday tabloid paper, It Will Be Missed by people who like to knowingly or otherwise have their faith in humanity drained out of them every Sunday. Otherwise, it will not be missed at all. If you managed to avoid this story over the past week, Buglers, then congratulations, but you might want to put some plastic clothing over your soul now before you hear about it, because you're about to wade into some depressingly murky waters. The 168-year-old miraculously, mysteriously long-running tabloid is accused of hacking into phones of not just celebrities, which was clearly illegal, but nothing that seemed to get anyone's anger up that far. But then it emerged that they were also hacking the phones of politicians, murder victims, terror victims, dead British soldiers and their families. Police have identified 4,000 possible targets uh, with missing murder victims' phones. They were even reportedly checking their messages and deleting some of them to allow space for more to be left, thus giving their family false hope that they were still alive. This is the moment, Buglers, where you really need to take your soul down to a car wash to have it industrially sprayed down. I guess the question is, John, when you hear about all these stories and the hacking into the voicemails of mm-hmm. bereaved families, what, what were they trying to find? What scoop? What scoop was in their sights? Hey, yeah, boss. Maybe it was a good one. Hey, boss, I've managed to hack into the voicemails of the grieving family of a dead war, war hero. Nice work, Bernstein and Woodward. What have they been saying? Well, they're quite upset about it. Hold the front page! (laughs) Jeff, you're going to have to redraw that cartoon. This changes everything. And can we replace the word delighted with devastated in the front page headline? (laughs) It defies any kind of human comprehension, John. And um, it's huge upheaval in the British tabloid press. Now, upheaval in the British tabloid press usually just means a photograph of a particularly well-endowed model in a well-constructed bra. (laughs) But not this week. Because, you said, the biggest-selling newspaper title in the British newsosphere, the news of the world, the rogue, distant, 
third cousin of this esteemed audio publication itself, <laughs> has been taken round the back of the smoking shed here in Wapping and shot. Um, the news world has, of course, through its history, been known for its crusading investigative journalism and fearless desire to expose corruption, breasts, wrongdoing, tits, hypocrisy, waps, drug-taking hooters, <laughs> criminality, norks, perversion, melons, people who fail to keep it in their trousers, dugs, underpants and boobs. And they have had pretty major successes in all of those, all of those categories, mm-hmm. I guess. But I think with the current slew of allegations, it is fair to say that the nation and probably the wider world has agreed that the news of the world had gone one step too far, and that one step was over the edge of a f***ing massive and already crumbling cliff. It did not just cross the line, John. It drove through the line in a high-speed tank, reversed back over the line, picked it up, taped the line back together, headbutted it, released the line into the woods, ran after it, kidnapped it, chained it to a radiator in its dungeon, fed it half a slice of stale bread and a glass of water every day, and whacked the line round the kneecaps with a baseball bat every morning before releasing it and saying, right, line, I never want to see you anywhere near one of my articles again, comprendo. <laughs> so the Murdochs did uh, act decisively and quickly. They didn't just pull the plug on the publication. They wrapped the chain that the plug was on around the news of the world's neck and kept pulling it until the twitching stopped, which was pretty rapidly. And thus, a slice of British journalistic history was brought to a splutteringly rapid end. And what had happened was the advertisers, who had previously thought that pointlessly and illegally hacking celebrities and politicians' phones was absolutely fine, became appalled by the latest allegations and were pulling out in droves like a Catholic orgy. And the first, uh, since going, as you say, since um, since 1843, and um, in fact they've 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 printed the the, the first edition in today's um, in today's final edition, back in 1843, mm-hmm. it features uh, etcherazzi drawings of pioneering computer hottie Ada Lovelace doing some maths, <laughs> an unflattering watercolour showing how Queen Victoria was struggling to regain her figure after giving birth to her first, third child in April of that year, allegations that Charles Dickens had written his current smash hit novel Martin Chuzzlewit using stolen quills, another etching of poetess Elizabeth Barrett Browning showing off her new tattoo in a bikini on the beach, plus suggestions that Foreign Secretary Lord Aberdeen might be having an affair with an unnamed Prussian princess, and tokens for a free dose of cholera. <laughs> that's uh, that's all there for 1843. It's going to leave a big hole in public life in Britain, John. Um, I mean, I was looking at the mm-hmm. website on Friday, still reeling from the knowledge that never again would I be able to go into a newsagent's shop on Sunday and not buy the news of the world. And I thought, <laughs> who is going to step into the breach, John? Who will right. be brave enough yep. to keep the world informed about who is sleeping with former pop star Kerry Katona? <laughs> this, I mean, someone is going to have to step into the breach, John. Someone it's tough. is going to have to be brave. There is a chasm there. So, um, I guess, uh, you know, they, were, they seem uh, understandably annoyed the current staff of the News of the World, most of whom were not around at the time of uh, these uh, appalling acts that have been alleged were happening. But the problem is that the whole of journalism has has been dragged through the mud. The stories have emerged of phone hacking, alleged illegal payments to police officers and general grubbiness. It's become clear that in the world of tabloid journalism, Ethics were just a county that you had to drive through on the way to pap a celebrity in a rehab centre in Thuffock. <laughs> morals were just what you needed when trying to play Welsh Scrabble. <clears throat> M- morals. Oh. Values were just the female sheep that used to be tended on the TV kid show Blue Peter by the famous presenter Valerie Singleton. <laughs> Val- oh, Decency oh, was how a travel agent might describe the uh-huh. Adriatic. Decency, not one of the all-time greats in my book, but does a job for you year in, year out. 
Integrity. Oh, it's just a handy description of film director Mike Lee. He's into gritty. Um, and good behaviour is something that you would say whilst trying to butter up a champion apiarist in order to get them to tell you all the sordid gossip on who the Queen Bee had been shagging. Good beehive, yeah. Good beehive, yep. Yeah. I'm done. I'm done on that lot. I'm done. I Oof. think that was... Uh, that was satirically and artistically valid, John. Will this change journalism for the better? Well, I'm not sure that will definitely happen. Here's an example of that. Ex-editor Rebecca Brooks, who was in charge during some of the alleged hacking at News of the World, gave a secret address to staff supporting them. Later that day, during a story on the evils of News of the World engaging in non-permitted recordings, a BBC news anchor said on TV... We've obtained a secret recording that was made of Rebecca Brooks speaking to her staff in Wapping earlier today. I should warn you, it isn't great quality, it was done secretly, but let's listen to it. So, the BBC did a story about how phone tapping was illegal and then got an illegally recorded speech taped on someone's phone and played it. I think the press has really decided to change its behaviour for good this time, Andy. So, yeah, I mean, a tabloid journalism is going to have to try and haul itself back up into the gutter. I guess that's, uh, you know, that's its initial initial starting point. Maybe politicians will realise they don't have to butter up the press like a Christmas crumpet in order to persuade the tiny minority of voters they need to persuade in this country that they are not irretrievably incompetent. Um, and also, will the newspaper-reading public finally sit up and think, hang on, maybe it doesn't matter if Gwyneth Paltrow's been photographed reading a book about lizards. Maybe I can live without that information. <laughs> But uh, another another uh, angle on this is that um, the Prime Minister David Cameron's former press secretary Andy Coulson was arrested and released on bail on Friday. Um, and as discussed on the Bugle previously, the Prime Minister's decision to hire an ex mm -hmm. News of the World editor as his media man looked very much like the decision of a man who wanted his media man to be prepared to do absolutely f***ing anything. So um, Cameron and Coulson prance into number ten uh, on the back of of uh, not losing the election as badly as anyone else. And Coulson then had to resign under the pressure of the phone hacking story. And Cameron's judgment has been made to look dodgier than a famous American automobile brand now owned by Chrysler Group. <laughs> and or dodgier than a former centre for the Leicester, England and British Lions rugby teams in the early 1980s. Delete as you see fit, or replace it with your own version. The mission of this show is to aggregate and amplify the best voices of the truly liberal media, and now you can play a critical role in helping fulfill that mission. I pick out the best clips I hear to share with you, and now you can do just the same thing extremely easily. Now available at bestoftheleft.com, each clip I play is made available individually with simple buttons that allow you to share your favorites on your networks through Facebook, Twitter, by email, and beyond. By myself, I can amplify this content to thousands of people, but collectively, we have the potential to reach millions. No kidding. Become your own media activist by taking one minute to share your favorite content a couple of days each week, help more people plug into the truly liberal media, and be an integral part of this extremely virtuous cycle. Thanks so much for your help. Little incident 
in Great Britain involving the Rupert Murdoch empire. We have a little bit of a story we're going to run for you now, and then we'll talk about it a little bit. Let's go to the clip. Here in London, this is much more than the story of the demise of one paper. It is a huge political scandal. Some are saying could be as big as Watergate. It is also a scandal at Scotland Yard, which failed to investigate these illegalities, and it is raising questions about the future of the Murdoch media empire. If the news of the world really covered its own demise, today's headline might read, Tawdry Tabloid Dies, No One Cries. The paper's cause of death, self-inflicted by its reporters, editors, and owner, media baron Rupert Murdoch. The news of the world, as owned and managed by Rupert Murdoch, was a criminal organization. For years, the news of the world delighted in enraging and embarrassing politicians, celebrities, and royals by exposing their most intimate failings. The public loved it. At its peak, the tabloid sold 8 million copies each Sunday, bringing in huge profits. For a decade, though, the paper has ducked a nagging scandal about its news-gathering methods. This week, that changed. All because of this girl. Her name, Millie Dowler. In 2002, Britain was riveted by the story of the 13-year-old's disappearance. Investigative reporter Nick Davies of the London Guardian broke the story. We discovered that during the period of time when she was missing and there was no explanation for what had happened to her, the news of the world were using a private investigator to listen to her voicemail. Now, that in itself was, was horrid. But where it then got worse was that the voicemail box on Millie's phone filled up. The news of the world were hungry for more information, for more stories. So they intervened and deleted the messages. That gave her family and police hope that she was alive. Millie was later found murdered. In a country used to sleazy tabloid techniques, this was a new low. The Millie Dowler story changed the politics of the whole saga and it made it really impossible for anybody to defend the news of the world overnight the most powerful man in british media became a villain Murdoch. okay so this is a, a really interesting story and i think a really important one for our country too first off let me start with a word of advice for rupert murdoch it's now become clear that the corporation you run is in effect a vast criminal enterprise and the worst case scenario is that you yourself could face prosecution as quickly as you can become a bank because in at least in this country the way not to get prosecuted is to become a too big to fail bank but uh, i was talking to some people who work in the british press over the weekend suspicion is that rupert will slip away uh, personally on this one although you never know but uh, i suspect that's true we'll get to that in a second first of all I studied in England for a year, although to say I studied would be overstating. I ostensibly studied in Great Britain for a year. Uh, it is still a sore point with my father that my activities did not incorporate uh, enough of what might legitimately be described as study. But I was there. And um, it, to an American, it's mind-boggling how sleazy their press is. Uh, it just uh, You can't imagine, I can't tell you if you haven't been there, but when that guy says, uh, you know, in a country known for whatever he said, cheap and tawdry journalism, 
he ain't kidding. And I mean, for, for a while, for example, these, these uh, newspapers like the News of the World, Rupert's Paper or The Sun, were trying to outdo each other in pictures of large-breasted, topless women. And it was Bird of the Day, and it was Page Three Girl, and, and just the sleaziest, trashiest, um, which Rupert brought. Uh, you know, nobody thought that uh, anything could be trashier in New York than the Daily News. Rupert proved them wrong when he bought the Post. So they ain't kidding. Um, but this is how stories turn. There had been reports for a long time that they were tapping a lot of people's phones, and I was kind of pretty much understood that they did, and including the royal family and, you know, members of a parliament and politicians and so on, but somehow nobody cared for some odd reason, you know, uh, the, the way these things work in a, in a country. And uh, so the story lingered and lingered, even started to get into police corruption, uh, you know, reports that Scotland Yard people there were being paid off to help them tap the phones or whatever, still nothing. Then it went to this young girl who was murdered. And that was the tipping point, because as the, as the um, report said, here you're talking about parents who spent months of agony not knowing where their girls were, and these people weren't just listening to her calls, they were deleting them so that they could get more calls and listen to them too, and the parents thought, she's alive, she's alive, she's listening to her messages and deleting them, and sending out tearful, heartfelt messages to her, she was dead. And uh, then the news of the world uh, did that and convinced them uh, that she might be alive. So that was the tipping point, and that's when people were willing to challenge Rupert Murdoch directly. Now it came out over the weekend that they were also tapping the phone of Prime Minister Gordon Brown. Again, nobody cares, it seems to care. But after the 13-year-old girl, now they care. I didn't do anything. I didn't do anything Stop 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 This Fuck Happening I Did Anything Melanie Sloan with Citizens for ethics and response, excuse me, for responsibility and ethics in Washington, C R E W, citizensforethics.org, the website. So, uh, Mel the executive director, Melanie Sloan, welcome back to our program. Oh, it's nice to be with you. Do you know if there has ever been a time in America's past? I know when, when Jack Kennedy came into office in 1961, there had never been more than 17 prosecutions of organized crime in the United States in one year in history. And he prosecuted over 700 in his first year. Uh, his brother Bobby was nuts. They went after the mafia. Uh, up until that point, J. Edgar Hoover was de denying that even the mafia existed because he was being blackmailed by Traficanti and Marcello. Were there any instances of newspapers around the United States owned by the mob at that time? Uh, I don't know. I have never, I've never heard that they were involved in the media. But wouldn't, aren't we looking right now at something very similar to that? I mean, an organized crime syndicate, basically, that owns newspapers. 
Or am um, I being hyperbolic here? Well, I think you might be a little hyperbolic. I mean, I, I certainly think there are plenty of, uh, of tough things uh, one can say about the News Corporation and Rupert Murdoch, and it's clear that they do uh, control much too much media, both in uh, Britain and here, and I think that uh, I, I think in Great Britain they are particularly seeing the uh, consequence of letting one uh, of the, the media conglomerate, and I think this is something uh, Americans have been concerned about uh, for a long time, the uh, disappearance of newspapers and the disappearance of competition so that one voice has just sort of an outsized voice. Right. Well, and, and in the U.K., what we're learning is that not only has Rupert Murdoch's news corporation committed Apparent, it's alleged right now, but I. I oh, they've clearly committed crimes. Okay. I think that's not too hard. Yeah, to there, there have been some serious arrests. They've come. They, they have committed crimes. They, you, you have newspapers that were actually criminal enterprises, and but although I, I suppose the the crime was to try to sell more newspapers, um, so maybe it's a little different than the mob, but maybe not because the you had um, Tony Blair hopped on a plane and flew to Australia to, to get on bended knee in front of Rupert Murdoch when he decided that he was going to run for prime minister. Gordon Brown made a pilgrimage to Rupert Murdoch to ask his blessing when he was going to run for prime minister. David Cameron, the current prime minister of the U.K., made a pilgrimage to Rupert Murdoch to ask for his blessing before he ran for prime minister. And in each case, when, Blair, when, when uh, Murdoch conferred that blessing, and Tony Blair was the odd man out. I mean, or, you know, I, I guess Brown was too. I mean, they weren't the hardcore conservatives. This was labor. This was like the Democratic Party. Once they got the blessing, they got the office. And, and I wonder in the United States here how it's all that different. I, I know of no Republican candidates that could possibly win the Republican primary if they didn't have... If uh, if they didn't have the support, at least the tacit support of Fox News, or if or who would definitely lose if they were opposed by Fox News, or am I overstating that one too? Well, I, I think that there are uh, some districts where it weighs more heavily than others. I think Fox certainly um, plays an uh, again an outsized influence in American politics, and I think it is something that we should be should be concerned about. We should also be very concerned about whether politicians uh, here in the United States, like in Britain, have been so have been afraid to criticize Murdoch because of what he might have on them or, money, or what he might do. And I do think we see uh, politicians having a fear. You don't see politicians in America very frequently taking on Fox or taking on Rupert Murdoch. They are remarkably quiet, even in the face of really terrible things that Fox, and untrue things that Fox broadcasts. So what do we do about it? How, you know, how do we prevent, in the UK, they're very clear about this. I mean, all these politicians are coming out and saying that even though they took, took uh, not necessarily money, because that's not how it works so much in the UK, they took lots and lots of publicity, positive publicity and, and support from, from Murdoch and his uh, various newspapers, the Sunday Times, the Sun, the, the uh, News of the World, um, that, that although they did that, they're walking back from it and they're now willing to support an investigation into crimes committed by him. No politician in the United States on the right, who would traditionally be supported by Fox, had, to the best of my knowledge, has said anything like that. And for that matter, I believe, if you know, I looked at Media Matters this morning, to the best of my knowledge, Fox pretty much is not reporting on the scandal involving Fox. Right. Fox isn't reporting on it. But let me also say there aren't really any uh, progressive uh, Democratic politicians who are talking about this either. I think right now this is viewed as a British scandal, not an American one, and I don't think most American politicians feel uh, the need to take it on yet. I mean, there could be a lot of negative consequences for 
even Democrats, if they said something about it. So I think they're waiting to see. But I do think if there be, if uh, more evidence comes down that um, these journalists were engaged in this kind of tactics on American soil, whether it was British journalists or American journalists, I think you will see um, politicians starting to speak up because Americans will be outraged if it turns out, as um, as a tabloid in Britain alleged yesterday, that uh, News of the World uh, at least attempted to break in to hack the voicemails of uh, victims of the 9-11 attacks. Right, here in the United States. Here in the United States. So, you know, to the best of my knowledge, there's no gatekeeper on the left. I mean, if you have union support, it might be easier, but there's a lot of uh, kind of blue dog anti-union Democrats in the in the House and the Senate. But on the Republican side, there's a very clear gatekeeper. If, if, if Rush Limbaugh, Sean Hannity, and all, and Fox News in general do not support you, you probably are not going to win an election. Um, do I have that right? And, and, and how destructive to democracy is that? Or for that matter, how destructive is it to the Republican Party? We have just a minute left, Melanie. Uh- I think it is hugely destructive to American politics in general that um, a broadcast entity that often doesn't tell the truth has such an outside influence. And I, I think uh, American politicians need to be worried. They don't want to end up being as humiliated as their British counterparts who are now so embarrassed by being in bed with Murdoch all those years. But shouldn't shouldn't they be humiliated it. by the fact that Fox is a gatekeeper right now here, regardless of whether it's criminal? Sure, absolutely. And I think they may come to regret that. Finally tonight, as promised, an insider's perspective on the Rupert Murdoch scandal. More specifically, two important sidebar questions. Why do decent people work for Rupert Murdoch, and why are they afraid to report or whistleblow the truth about Rupert Murdoch? Why, in a business where egos are so large and fragile that a guy I knew 30 years ago maintained a vigilant hatred of his employers and leaked information about them constantly because his name had once been mispronounced by his boss, why does almost nobody tell on Murdoch? First, this awful, awful truth. I used to work for him. It was only sports. It was only for two and a half years. It was only for his minions, and most of them were not really any worse than anybody else's minions. And I never even met Murdoch himself. But I used to work for him. Sports news on cable five nights a week and hosting the baseball coverage on the Fox Broadcast Network all day Saturday. So I know why many people, decent people, work or worked for him. Because they didn't think it was really going to be different. But in the spring of 2001, I was able to get a second source to confirm a story I'd been working on for weeks, that its owners were informally talking about selling the Los Angeles Dodgers baseball team. This put me in more than a slight quandary. The then owners of the Los Angeles Dodgers baseball team were Rupert Murdoch and News Corp. My bosses suggested the best course was to contact Murdoch's own personal public relations man. I related to them, and I have told of this saga before, that this Dodger story has fallen into my lap. It didn't come from anybody inside our company. The two sources are impeccable. Journalistically, I'm obligated to try to pursue the story. From Murdoch's flat came the answer that Mr. Murdoch never interfered with the content of the news. And silly me, I believed him. Provided I made it clear that the sources for the story were not from within News Corp, and provided I included News Corp's denial, Murdoch's man told us, my producers included, that we should go with it. 
I wrote the script, caveats included, and emailed it to the flack. The story ran on April 22, 2001. Two and a half weeks later, my agent got a call from the man in charge of Fox's baseball coverage, which was to resume two weeks later. He explained that it would be resuming all right, but I wouldn't. I was no longer going to be Fox's baseball host. My cable show would be canceled, too. My salary would continue, but my time at Fox would not continue. That night, I got a phone call from a prominent newspaper columnist who covered TV sports, who told me what he had heard about my ouster. He said Murdoch had been on some sort of trip to Asia. When he got back, somebody told him that one of his own networks had reported that he was trying to sell the Dodgers. Before detonating, Murdoch waited just long enough to find out the name of the reporter, my name, and then he personally ordered me fired immediately. I told the columnist that I knew nothing of the sort. It couldn't be possible because I'd followed all the rules set down by Murdoch's own PR man. The day after that, I spoke again to the same columnist. Now he said he had misspoken. He hadn't heard anything about Murdoch firing me for reporting the Dodgers story. He had heard that I was telling other people that Murdoch had fired me for reporting the Dodgers story. But I had never told anybody that. Whatever, I thought, I have to pack. And I didn't think again about the Dodgers story or Murdoch personally firing me. Never in the next seven years did I ever get the slightest official explanation or even strong hint from anybody at Fox or outside of it why I had been let go. But then in 2008, a reporter asked Rupert Murdoch if he would ever hire me to work on Fox News, and Murdoch said, quote, No, I fired him years ago. He was crazy. And by the way, two years after he fired me, Rupert Murdoch sold the Dodgers. Hi, I'm Sam Cedar. You may know me from my shows on Air America Radio, from filling in for Keith Olbermann on Countdown, or even, God forbid, my directing shows like Comedy Central's I'm With Busey. If not, you should really get to know me. Not personally, of course. I think we'd both find that uncomfortable. But if you're a fan of the best of the left like me, I think you'll enjoy my daily live show and podcast, The Majority Report, at Majority.fm. It's a daily dose of political news, analysis, and guests like Chris Hayes, Robert Reich, Digby, comedians like Mark Marin, Janine Garofalo, filmmakers like Morgan Spurlock and Lucy Walker, and on occasion, between my rants on raising taxes, ending wars, and decorporatizing our democracy, I can be mildly amusing. I'm unbought and unbossed daily on the Majority Report at Majority.fm. Let's play Screaming Majorities, Murdoch on the Line. This is a great one, folks. Another great one from Screaming Majority. Uh, this is our recap of the week. And, of course, the Murdoch story, a huge story. I don't think this one's going to go away for a long time. Here is uh, David Ben-Joya uh, and his Screaming Majority. Try to call you, baby. Wanna make you mine Each time I call you, baby I give Rupert Murdoch on the line Need to hear your sweet voice Ease my worried psyche Each time I hear What's all this noise? Wallabies Crikey Pitching woo That's not news Don't you have a dead relative or two? Try to call you, baby I tell you you're so fine Each time I call 
lucky baby. I get Rupert Murdoch on the line. Uh, 15 large pizza pies with extra Vegemite. Send it to the BBC. Uh, hold on. I've got a call on the other line. Hello, Ruth. David Cameron here. Got any dirt on my political enemies? <laughs> well, the former Prime Minister has a young son. The boy is very, very sick. Why, that's wonderful. But word's got now that you've been hacking phones and some of the sticklers have got their knickers in a bunch. Oh no! The jiggeroo's gone buggeroo! Try to call you, baby. Tell you that I'm dying. That's more like it. Each time I call you, baby, I get Rupert Murdoch on the line. Stop the presses. No, seriously, stop them. We've been busted. We're shutting down. Prince dead anyway. The second half of my story I have never told publicly before. It's time. In June of 2000, after a year and a half of doing two one-hour cable shows a night for Murdoch and baseball from 7 a.m. to 5 p.m. every Saturday, I got sick. My doctor told me if I didn't, among other things, slow down at work, he would be treating me for heart disease within the decade. I took him very seriously. I told my employers about cutting back, maybe from the six days to five, and offered to give back to Fox some of my salary in the process because my health was at risk, maybe my heart. They immediately took me off the air. They refused to put me back on until I had gotten them a letter from my doctor guaranteeing them that I was well enough to work. By itself, that was hardly an evil thing to do. In fact, I recognized it as a prudent business decision, and I complied because I didn't know what they intended to do with that letter. They blackmailed me with it. The head of Fox Sports Net, the operation, told my agent that since they had a document that indicated I was well enough to return to work, they were now going to change my schedule. Instead of anchoring six days a week in the Los Angeles studio, they were going to have me anchor four days and then fly to and from different interviews, events, and promotions, etc., in other cities, two different times per week. In short, they were threatening to work me into illness or into the hospital or both. They offered an alternative. They would cut my work schedule, not to five days, but to three, and they would cut my salary by 60%. And they expected an answer overnight. They got it. I took the deal. I had no choice. They were blackmailing me about my health. And Fox blackmail works. And that's the way it works. And Lord only knows, if it works so well on somebody with resources and a high profile like mine, how often was it used against lesser figures in the company? So. Report the truth about Murdoch with the pre-approval of Murdoch's right-hand man, and you're still going to get fired. Work for Murdoch and tell the truth about Bill O'Reilly, and you're likely to get sued. Ask Andrea Macris. Work for Murdoch and tell the truth about Roger Ailes, and you're likely to get buried. Ask Judith Regan. And realize at all times that they will do anything to you, like blackmail you about your own health, to get you to do what they want. And that, perhaps, is the partial answer to the questions, why do decent people work for Rupert Murdoch? And why are they afraid to report or whistleblow the truth about Rupert Murdoch? All of which works, as long as it's just one or two decent people versus Rupert Murdoch. When the worm turns and the truth bursts from around the edges like ten tidal waves at once, as it has at the News of the World and the Sun and the Times of London, it will all come out at once. And when the tide recedes, there will be nothing left. Not of News Corp, not of Fox News, not of Rupert Murdoch. So all those bailing out now while the water is only waist high, start talking. Only the first 500 whistleblowers will be served. You can take a picture of something you see.
Right now, Rupert Murdoch is in the news. You know, is what, he? One of my favorite things to do was when I watch Citizen Kane is every time they say the hero's name, I substitute Rupert, Rupert Murdoch in my mm. head, right? And, uh, and I love that the media is portraying this as a huge scandal, that Rupert Murdoch... The fact that uh, he is illegally hacking into people's voicemails and uh, that somehow he's going to be punished because he's not allowed to buy another multi-million dollar. He can't buy the controlling interest in another multimedia organization. That's I wish consequences work like that for me. You know, yeah. like I learned, hey, Jimmy, you just broke into someone's house and shot somebody. Well, you're not going to get to buy that Ferrari next week, young man. Yeah, <laughs> that that's how it happens. And I also love that Burdock's company is coming under scrutiny for its unethical methods of getting at the truth. Shouldn't the bigger story been that Fox News method of just not telling the truth is the I mean, mm-hmm. so there there I mean if it came out that Fox News was hacking into people's voicemails here in America, but they were doing factually accurate reports, I don't think people would be that pissed mm-hmm. off. They go, wow, they're, they're actually aggressively pursuing news instead of passively filtering it. Or, or just making it up, right? which is what they do. Uh, <clears throat> but I think that what this really exemplifies is that no one is saying that this entire uh, scandal exemplifies the problem of Western corporate structure, which whose motto is... Do whatever you have to do to maximize profits and minimize costs and do it every quarter or you're fired. And yes, you can totally breach ethics and break the law as long as you run the numbers and it's worth the risks. Profits are moral. Profits are moral. Greed is good. You don't believe me? There are 29 people who would still be alive today in West Virginia if Massey Energy hadn't run the numbers and realized safety violations were totally worth the risk. And what did Massey Energy get for its deadly malfeasance? They got bought out for $7 billion. There are 11 people dead who used to work at an office called the Deepwater Horizon. And in that office, the Xerox machine was always out of toner, and the blowout preventer was not up to spec. Still, I bet those employees would tell you that their stock options in Transocean were doing great right up until the moment they were blown off the planet. It's not even the people who create this problem that are evil. It's the shareholders. It's everyone with a mutual fund. It's you. It's me. The news of the world was doing exactly what it was supposed to be doing according to this corporate business model. Did they break the law? Sure. But until they got caught, everybody was happy. And, you know, Rupert Murdoch, let me just say, why doesn't he just go ahead and get the Nehru jacket and his cat and just start stroking it all the time? Mm-hmm. Just go ahead and commit all the way. Now, do you think this? Uh, do you think there's going to be any ramification? He's taking bids on cats right now. That's why. <laughs> do you think that there's any? Uh, I'll, I'll ask you, Frank. Do you think there's anything that's going to happen to Rupert Murdoch of any consequence? Well, the consequence today: the Emmys came out and the Emmy nominated, and he's nominated for best phone hacking. So, <laughs> in, on a limited series, so. So, uh, you know, aside from what you said, they, you know, he can't buy a B Sky Network or whatever right. it's called. Um, there's not not going to really be any consequences. Uh, no, for him. I, I, you know, uh, they they're going. Paul, you, I think you hit the nail on the head. That this is, uh, you know, this is what Ayn Rand. This is this is yes. what Ayn Rand gives you when yes. when you. Yes. Corporations are allowed to do what they want. This is this is as bad as communism. You know, someone said uh, they did a study and a psychological study of corporations, and they act uh, exactly like an amoral psychopath yeah. would act. They're uh, conscienceless. They have no concern about the future. They act only in their in their right. immediate self interest. 
And in a lot of ways, they are their own worst enemy because they're worshiping of the quarterly bottom line uh, to please investors in the short run. They often, as you see, like with the big three auto, have no game plan for the long term, and they paint themselves into these corners. Right. right. And uh, Robert, what do you think about the Rupert Murdoch? Uh, I think absolutely nothing's going to happen to this guy. I think this is this is we might as well not even talk about the story because nothing's going to change. Exactly nothing. You don't think, really? I don't even think the players are going to change. I, I think like Rupert Murdoch is going to this is going to little blip in his life, mm-hmm. and he's going to go back to whatever. He's going to go back to being a Doctor Who villain. Yeah. He's just <laughs> a couple of people will take the fall. Everybody will forget about it, and then he'll go back to doing what he does. He, you know. People like him are are no different, really, than um, drug addicts that that break into into people's houses. They just do it on a huge scale, but because they have jets, for some reason, we don't. You're right, Paul. That treat is a, them. White collar. He's addicted to money and power. It's so it's so to the point where he'll break laws internationally to do it and to do really nefarious stuff. So right. Do you want to say? Yeah, something? I want to weigh in. I I think. There is something that's going to come down. I what? think I really think they are going to be held accountable. Uh-huh. I think his son is going to be tried for these crimes. Really? I th- yes. I really think in the, in the UK, it seems like they are really, for the last five years, they've been investigating this. Okay. So I, You think in the UK that he'll be brought up on charges? Yes, and, but I think it's also going to touch his licensing, Murdoch's licensing in the United States. I'm weighing in now. Fellas. Yeah, I'm wow. letting you know right that, now. I, hope, I but, sure hope that's true, but I think everybody below his family members is at risk for taking yes. a fall. But oh, I don't. Yes, I, do too. I don't believe anybody in his family is going to spend a day in jail. I, I just hope it doesn't lower the quality on the Fox News network. <laughs> <laughs> I think that uh, what's going to happen is they're going to arrest him. He's going to do hard time. They're going to split up his company into smaller companies, encouraging <laughs> encouraging competition, and bring some health back to the media in in America. And um, I think we're going to write this course. That's what I. That's my prediction. <laughs> Uh, How sad is it that that's been the funniest thing on the show? (laughs) How sad is that? I also think, you know, it just just occurs to me, too, that, um, you know, if they can do this phone hacking, and, you know, they're a big corporation and everything. I mean, and, you know, the world is so wired in now. Like, I'm sure everything that's being done is being eavesdropped on and being scrutinized and – you know, any anyone who's who's except guess, the shows we produce that we want people to hear. Yes, right. Exactly. <laughs> except for, I'm, try, I'm trying to get my agent to get my stuff ha- hacked, but yeah. <laughs> he says uh, I'm not. I don't have the marketability for that. But uh, you know, so yeah, it just occurs to me that this kind of thing really happens a, a lot more than than we give than we let ourselves think about. You know, of phones being. Eve's dropped on and P- and and agencies looking at what we're looking at at. Um, well, I think I, I saw Eric Holder, the uh, defense secretary, in his last testimony. For some reason, he mentioned he couldn't believe the weird kind of porn that I'm into online. <laughs> so that kind of worried me. You know what? Actually, uh, Bill O'Reilly called me, and uh, he's got something to say about this whole scandal. Jimmy Dore. How's it going? <laughs> Bill O'Reilly. So, true to form, you and your little pinhead friends are going after Fox News and News Corp over this whole flap about Rupert Murdoch and everything. And hey, look, I got to defend my boss here. Technically, my boss's boss. This is nonsense, all this stuff about this uh, this voicemail crap. Uh, let me explain something to you idiots. Your voicemail <laughs> is not your private property, okay? You got no reasonable expectation of privacy there. 
time was back in the day, your telephone used to belong to the phone company. Now, that may not be the case anymore, but your voicemails don't belong to you because they're not inside your phone. <laughs> stored at the, the phone company. So they're not even yours to begin with, Pinhead. So think about that for a second. Yeah, I don't care. You know, I don't care. You want to hear my voicemails? I don't give a fuck. <laughs> I don't care. Go ahead and listen to them. You'd be very bored. I'll give you the Gary Hart treatment on that. I got a couple of them in there. You hear, uh, what do you see? There's one from my accountant. I dare you to listen to that. Uh, it's one from Rob. My boss, Roger Rails, invited me upstairs to his office to work on a plate of pork shoulders with him. <laughs> a couple of voicemails from Glenn Bax, just him calling and crying. I get <laughs> every week. And then there's just, you know, maybe a voicemail from the guy that I get my loofahs and falafels from. <laughs> I got a guy for that, Jimmy. <laughs> so whatever. I mean, if, if these people have something to hide in their voicemails, Maybe they shouldn't be hiding them in the first place. We're allowed to listen to other people. We're allowed to hack in. That's how it goes. Just because you're 13 and dead doesn't mean the news oh. stops. Oh, my God. <laughs> wow. Oh, Bill O'Reilly's out of line wow. this week. <laughs> hey, the news doesn't stop. This oh, you're... my God. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed this show, but also consider it a valuable tool for not only aggregating, but more importantly, amplifying our view of progressive politics in the world. So if that's true, I ask you to support this work by becoming a member of the show at whatever level you're able, as anything from a basic leftist up through the ranks of socialist, communist, Satanist, or even the most reviled level of support, George Soros. I produce 11 episodes a month of fearless coverage on all the hot-button issues we face, maintaining a rock-solid schedule. So if that sounds worth supporting, please consider signing up to donate as little as $5 a month or even $55 a year. Members also gain access to bonus audio and video content that doesn't make it into the show itself. So for a concrete way to support a strong, progressive voice, please visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. The vast majority of the people killed in the 9-11 attacks were, of course, American citizens. The second most prevalent nationality among 9-11 victims was British. A former New York City police officer says a British tabloid called News of the World contacted him and told him they would pay him to retrieve private phone records of British citizens killed on 9-11. The ex-officer claims reporters wanted the victims' phone numbers and details of the calls they made and received in the days leading up to 9-11. With phone numbers of the victims, News of the World could hack into the victims' voicemail to retrieve and publish those voicemails. The former New York City cop says he turned the tabloid down. On July 7, 2005, in the morning rush hour, four coordinated suicide bombings on the London transit system killed 52 people. That attack is known in England as 7-7. The family of at least one 7-7 victim was notified last week that their phones may have also been hacked by News of the World. British soldiers killed in Iraq and Afghanistan, their names and contact information and those of their families have also turned up in the notebooks of a private investigator employed by News of the World. 
The paper is not denying or confirming that its investigator hacked into the phones of dead service members. But the paper did put out a statement saying that if that did happen, it would be absolutely appalled and horrified. In 2002, a 13-year-old girl named Millie Dowler disappeared in a London suburb. In the six months between the day she disappeared and the day her body was found, News of the World journalists hacked into Millie Dowler's cell phone and may have deleted some of her voicemails in order to make room for new ones to come in, hoping that would provide the paper clues to the girl's whereabouts. The paper's actions gave the girl's family and investigators false hope that the girl was still alive and still accessing her phone. In 2006, another Rupert Murdoch-owned tabloid paper reported that the infant son of then-Prime Minister Gordon Brown had been diagnosed with a respiratory disease, cystic fibrosis. Prime Minister Brown and his family had been trying to keep their son's health information private. They said they were devastated by the diagnosis being made public. It has been alleged that that information was obtained by hacking into the infant's medical records. The paper denies that allegation, to, denied that allegation today. They say a member of the public voluntarily gave them that information. The unfolding scandal here is not about one rogue paper. It appears to be about one huge rogue company. The story about Gordon Brown's infant son was not a news of the world story. It was published by another Rupert Murdoch-owned paper called The Sun. Yesterday, Mr. Brown accused a third Murdoch paper, The Sunday Times, of employing, quote, known criminals to gather personal information on his banking, legal files, and tax affairs. Beyond the illegal hacking and spying allegations, there's also a bribery component here. News of the World editor at the time of the dead child phone hacking admitted to a parliamentary committee that the paper bribed police officers for information. The bribery allegations themselves are lurid. The Murdoch paper paying police officers tens of thousands of pounds in cash for information, sometimes handing over envelopes of cash at a fast food chain drive through so far, the business and financial implications for Mr. Murdoch and his media companies have been swift. The 168-year-old News of the World tabloid will not see its 169th year. The paper has been shut down. Today, Mr. Murdoch's company ended its years-long $12 billion effort to take over the British Sky Broadcasting Company. That news sent the satellite broadcasting company's stock tumbling. Had Mr. Murdoch acquired that company, he would have controlled 40% of all commercial television in Britain. The family that sold the Wall Street Journal to Rupert Murdoch now says it regrets doing so. The business consequences of the scandal are still unfolding, but the legal consequences started unfolding years ago. In 2007, a News of the World editor and a private investigator hired by the paper were jailed for the phone hacking, which they admitted to. The editor, Andy Coulson, denied knowing anything about the phone hacking, but he resigned anyway. The Conservative Party and its leader, David Cameron, then hired that editor, Andy Coulson, to be a communications director for them. Last week, he and another editor were arrested on corruption, hacking, and bribery charges. An editor at The Guardian newspaper says he told Prime Minister David Cameron's office about Colson's involvement in the scandal at the time Cameron was hiring him. Cameron denied those charges today in Parliament and announced an official inquiry. After listening carefully, we've decided the best way to proceed is with one inquiry, but in two parts. I can tell the House that this inquiry will be led by one of the most senior judges in our country. The inquiry will be established under the 2005 Inquiries Act, which means it will have the power to summon witnesses, including newspaper reporters, management, proprietors, policemen and politicians of all parties, to give evidence under oath and in public. 
here in the United States, Democratic Senators Barbara Boxer, Jay Rockefeller, Frank Lautenberg, and Bob Menendez have all called for investigations of Murdoch's company by the Justice Department and the Securities and Exchange Commission. The senators say they want to know if Americans had their privacy invaded and whether or not any U.S. laws were broken. In the House, Republican Peter King of New York has asked the FBI to investigate whether News Corp journalists tried to get a hold of 9-11 victims' phone records. A journalist at The Guardian, which spent years reporting on this story, has promised the Associated Press today that we do not yet know everything there is to know about this scandal, that there is more to come. The outstanding questions at this point are whether or not this scandal, frankly, has the potential to bring down the British government and whether it also may rock the Rupert Murdoch media empire around the world and here in the U.S., where it includes not only the dominant business newspaper in the country, the Wall Street Journal, but also the dominant media voice of the Republican Party and conservative politics in the Fox News Channel. Thanks for listening, everyone, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you would like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to action yourself to be played on the show, the number to dial is 206-202-3410. So today I have a story I want to tell that I think will be very informative and will basically teach you the fundamental uh, truth that you need to know to succeed in everything. Now, uh, I'm, I'm talking about it in terms of campaigning, like campaigning for social change, activism, that sort of thing, or project, like a big project you uh, want to put together and follow through to a conclusion of some sort. Now, the moral of the story first is learn to say no to good ideas or even really good ideas. And the reason you do this is to allow great ideas to survive. Now, so the personal story I have related to this uh, goes back a few years. I, as many people do, moved to Washington, D.C. I no longer live there, but I I moved to D.C. I was going to get involved in the political process. And because, you know, I assumed that no one else in the history of the world had ever thought to, uh, you know, go to the center of power and try to make things right in the way I would, that I would succeed in fixing all the problems in the world. And of course that happened. So I, uh, I, I moved away once that project was done. But before I fixed the world, I, I went and was very ignorant and um, you know, naive to a certain extent about a lot of things. And so the, the first place I lived in D.C. just happened to be uh, the spare bedroom of a guy who is the executive director of a climate change nonprofit organization. I later ended up working for that organization, and that is a completely different story. So, uh, so I was I was just living there. I had no idea what exactly a climate change nonprofit organization did, and he called himself an organizer. Besides being the executive director, is his official title. He gave his job description. His title was organizer. I was like, "What is an organizer?" I had to ask him one day, and and he told me he uh, organizes grassroots, otherwise known as individuals, grassroots pressure to build a political pressure to put on politicians to get politicians to pass legislation that makes the world a better place for everybody. That's, that's the idea. In his case, it was focused on climate change. So I had this kicking around in my head and, um, I went to the John F. Kennedy center for the performing arts. 
you know, I'm, I'm new in DC. I found, I found out that they have free shows uh, once a week. I think it might be Mondays, but you know, check your local listings. And, um, and so I go and it's beautiful and the show's great. And, and I'm looking around as, and as any, uh, you know, environmentally conscious person would do, I saw hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of incandescent light bulbs lighting up the building and thought, well, you know, that looks nice, but it seems kind of wasteful. Like, you know, it's the performing arts, John F. Kennedy, like probably a bunch of progressive guys running this building. Like, why can't we get some more energy efficient light bulbs in here? And that was the spark of an idea. I thought, well, wait a second. I've been hearing this analogy recently about uh, climate change and clean energy. And what people have been saying is that what we need is an Apollo project for clean energy. We need to set an absurdly high goal, such as reaching the moon, reaching the moon of clean energy. And once we have set that goal, we as Americans will get our you know, our dander up and be like, man, it, like we're going to get there or, or, you know, or we'll be mad, you know, I don't <laughs> whatever Americans do when they get excited. And so, uh, and so if we, if we set an absurdly high goal, then, uh, then we can have a clean energy revolution in this country and it'll spread across the world and we'll all save ourselves from climate change. And so I thought like the messaging for this is too perfect. What if we run a campaign to get the Kennedy Center to switch to more energy efficient light bulbs and use that as a pivot point for the media and messaging to come together and say, you know, in honor of John F. Kennedy's legacy, we need an Apollo project for clean energy and to reduce the amount of energy we use. Like it's genius, right? And you're just like, oh man, I just I can feel the buzz happening already. Like, what a great campaign to run, <laughs> or or maybe not. But anyways, I got really excited about it. I thought it was a great idea, one of the best ideas I'd ever had. And I was so excited, I was going to go tell this guy who runs the climate change nonprofit all about it. And th- you know, I, this is several years ago. I don't remember why exactly I didn't tell him about it, but I didn't. And I'm glad I didn't. I, I was saved from uh, displaying the level of my ignorance by uh, by not telling him about it. And I, I, th- I think probably what happened was I, I learned more about what his organization did. The campaign that they were working on was so far above the little PR campaign that I had in mind that it would have been sad in comparison, basically. You know, there were uh, strategically targeting grassroots, grassroots pressure to, to, on particular uh, politicians in the state house to get them to vote on, uh, on, you know, on landmark legislation, which would have a concrete impact on changing the energy dynamic in the state. You know, like, do you see what I'm saying? Like, you see how that compares to let's just get a, a, like a media PR shot of the JFK Center to get some publicity and and some feel good vibes. Like it doesn't really measure up. So go back to the moral. You know you have to learn to say no to good ideas or re- even really good ideas. Not that I'm saying my idea was all that super good. Now in retrospect, in favor of great ideas. And so if I had brought that idea to him, he would have turned it down. And he would have said, you know, that that may even be a good idea, but we don't have infinite resources. 
it's only a good idea in a vacuum. It's a good idea if nothing was being done whatsoever. That's a good starting point. It's, only, it's a good idea if there, were, if there were infinite resources that we could dedicate. That could be one thing we do. But we're not in a vacuum. Things are being done and we don't have infinite resources. So we need to focus the resources we have on what we're able to do. Now, fast forward to the present. I'm personally now, uh, you know, I run this show and I'm working on other projects in the meantime, uh, all related to progressive media uh, and will all integrate with the show eventually. So the, these three projects I'm working on uh, in my mind it are absolutely supercharging the way progressive media can get disseminated through social media networks uh, on, on the web right now. And so listeners of the show are familiar with this concept. I've now made all of the clips that I put into the show. I've made them available individually and integrated social media with the website and encouraged everyone that once you hear a show, you take what you like and you send that out to your networks. And by doing this and by hundreds or thousands of people taking part in this, we can disseminate more progressive media to more and more thousands and uh, hopefully more uh, in, in the long run, thousands and thousands of people, which is great. Everyone approves of that. I also have an idea that I'm working on uh, very actively to downright revolutionize the way progressive media gets funded. Uh, that is months down the road and not nearly ready to be talked about, but I just want to mention it as something that's on the board. And this, this idea that I just uh, announced is just the seed of an idea right now that I, I want other people to kind of uh, tackle is is an, an idea to kind of change and reorganize the way progressive messaging is uh, is, is done, you know, to, to organize something that is currently completely disorganized. So I have these three kind of big projects that kicking around, and what is similar about all of them is that I've said no to good ideas along the way. Good ideas have had to be set aside in favor of great ideas. And I've seen it happen in my personal life, in you know my personal media world that I control, and I also saw it firsthand, and this is where I learned it, was working at that climate change nonprofit. Because there are so many good ideas out there for how to solve the climate crisis, and you can only do so much. So you have to pick the best expenditure for your limited resources. And that's what I saw them do over and over again. So take this to heart in whatever way you see fit, in whatever aspect of your life that you're trying to make change, you have great ideas uh, that you want to move forward on. Just remember to focus. Focus on the absolute best, most impactful thing you can be doing. And that's where you should put your energy. So those are my stories. That is my piece of advice. I did not come up with it on my own. I just added my own little flavor to it. And I promise you, it is the path to success in, as I say, every facet of life. Now, just let me mention really quickly that uh, due to listener request, what you just heard, uh, not what you're hearing right now, but what you just heard segmented by itself, just that story and the little moral and everything, it's going to be segmented and also posted to YouTube so that you guys can share it if you thought it was worthy of such uh, treatment. And uh, so this stuff, all the kind of house cleaning stuff at the end is not going to be part of that. And uh, so enjoy. And that, of course, is along with all the other clips posted uh, on the website at bestoftheleft.com. 
Now today, I just want to thank a couple of uh, volunteers and members, as I always do. Uh, volunteers Mike, Colette, Todd, Joe, Laura, Emerson, Lauren, and a couple new ones, uh, Mel and Sharice have been helping out. And uh, so I want to thank all of those volunteers for help making the show possible. And members Catherine S. Uh, signed up for her yearly leftist membership back on December 17th of last year. And Jonathan H. signed up for a leftist monthly membership and has stuck with the show since then, uh, since October 11th of last year. So huge thanks to both of those members and all of the members and donors who make the show possible. I simply couldn't do it without you guys. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it. Stay connected with us between episodes by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information is always listed in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you 11 times a month, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Black and white You took apart a picture that wasn't right Pitch burning on a shining sheet The only maker that you want to be A dying man in a living room Whose shadow bases the floor Who'll take you out in the open door This is not my life just a fun fact.